It is so good to be with you, Risen Church. Um, If you guys would, just join me in a word of prayer as we begin. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and do what only you can do. Illumine our eyes and our hearts to your word. Put a spotlight on Jesus Christ so that we might see him and see his work for us, see his love for us, see the hope that we have only in him. God, we all just take a moment to confess before you that we are so prone to allow our gaze to wander to less valuable things and miss the beauty of the gospel. And so we gather here as brothers and sisters this morning, and we ask you to turn our gaze back, that we might see you in your beauty, in your goodness, in your grace this morning in your word. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen. Well, hey, if I have not had the chance to uh, meet you yet, um, my name is Matt Hodges. I am the teaching pastor, preaching pastor over at your sister church and uh, fellow church in the Risen Collective up in the Northwest area of Houston, Risen Church Northwest. And I want to just begin by saying how grateful I am for our partnership in the gospel. It is continually a blessing to me. It is a continual blessing to our staff and to our church just to know that uh, even down 99, there are brothers and sisters who are giving themselves over to the same kingdom work and the same Jesus and the same gospel. And uh, that excites me and it spurs me on in ministry. And I hope that it does for you knowing that it's happening there. And we look forward to Lord willing many years of partnering together for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, I, uh, I have grown up, born and raised in the Houston area. Actually, the Woodlands is my stomping ground. So this is where I grew up and went as a child and went through high school uh, and then moved off to Baylor and then came back and just moved like 30 minutes down the road. So Houston has been my home for my entire life, which means that for the past 32, almost 33 years, I've experienced every year what you all have just experienced. And if you've been in Houston, have been experiencing for some time, and that is you spend the whole summer longing for fall, and then fall gets here, kind of. And fall walks into the room, and it's like, hey, it's really good to be with you guys. Hold on, I forgot something. I got a jet again, and we're back into what every other place in the world would call summer. And I kick myself every year that I endure this and I stay in Houston and I go, well, maybe I'll finally get used to it one year. And no, I never do. And every year I'm complaining my way through the summer and every year I'm rejoicing my way into pseudo fall, into eventual fall. But what I have noticed is that one of the things that the, the uh, schizophrenic what Houston weather does is that it allows me to appreciate when the temperature actually changes Because I talk to people from other areas who have real seasons and they're just used to it, right? They take for granted what they have when the temperatures change. But here, when that thermostat first hits the 70s and then the 60s and you just feel the joy of your salvation return to you and ignited with a passion and a delight and it, it happens every single year and every single year I'm surprised and I shouldn't be. But we all know that feeling, at least if you've experienced that in Houston now for however many years. And it it reminds me a lot of what I hope that we can pull out of Psalm 51 this morning in our time together. 
that as you suffer through the reality of a Houston summer and it makes you feel your need for fall temperatures and to put on layers and to light a fire, that you start to really appreciate it. And you don't really appreciate it unless you go through feeling the need for it and feeling the longing for it and understanding just how valuable it is. That people elsewhere don't understand what we Houstonians are longing for in the fall. And in many ways, I think that is really the roadmap that Psalm 51 gives us. So I want to just real quick show of hands, who here desires to have more delight in the Lord? I'm really glad that every hand in this room went up. I've yet to meet the Christian, the brother or sister who just says, you know what? I think I'm tapped out. I think I'm just capped. I think I have enough joy in the Lord and I think I'm good and I can just sort of coast through here. No, when, when Jesus truly is our treasure, we want more of him. We want more delight in him. We want more joy in him. Part of the problem is, is that what is required to get there often is uncomfortable. That we must endure, so to speak, the Houston summer to get to the delight of the fall temperatures. And I think that's exactly what Psalm 51 shows us because when David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And again, everyone who just put their hand up is echoing that exact same cry that we want the joy of our salvation restored. We don't want our salvation to just be some intellectual ascent that we have or some theological idea. We want to feel deep joy in Christ and for what he has done for us. But when you read through Psalm 51, you see the journey that it takes David to get there. And you see the heart work that is required and you see what he has to confront in order to come out the other side with a restored joy in his salvation. And that is what I believe Psalm 51 shows us is that the roadmap to joy in the Lord is through true contrition and sorrow for sin. That the joy of our salvation does not become real to us until we realize just how much in need we are of salvation. The Savior becomes sweet when our sin is sour. And I think the problem for me, for many of us, is that we do not take the time to do the hard work of tasting the sourness of our sin so that we might taste the sweetness of the Savior. Here's how Andrew Murray says it. He says, Inadequate thoughts about sin and the confession of sin lead one to think little of mercy and the redeeming power of God. So that if you find yourself thinking little of God's mercy... If you're unimpressed with the mercy of God, if you find yourself thinking little of the redeeming power of God, it likely is because you are thinking little of your sin or having inadequate thoughts about your need for a savior. And what I appreciate about Psalm 51 is it doesn't just show us that this is sort of the path. It actually walks us through that as you go through the Psalm, which we're going to do, it shows us, okay, what does it look like to actually feel our sorrow for sin. How do we see our sin rightly? How do we actually come out beholding and gazing our need for a savior? 
And I believe it does begin with seeing our sin. So I want to talk about just three ways that Psalm 51 helps us see our sin or leads us into seeing our sin so that we might taste the sweetness of our Savior. Number one, we need to see our sin clearly. We need to see our sin clearly. In verse three, and I should have said this, if you have your Bibles, please open to Psalm 51. We'll have some of the verses on the screen, but we're going to just walk through it together. In verse three, David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So it begins by him saying, I know my transgressions. I recognize, I see clearly my transgressions. My sin is right in front of me. He sees it clearly. And I want to talk about how David came to see his sin clearly, because there's something interesting about Psalm 51 that you don't get in many other Psalms. And that is at the beginning in verse one, there's, you actually get the occasion for the Psalm and you get it in some pretty specific detail. Look at verse one, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. Okay, that's normal. But what follows isn't usually there in front of a Psalm. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So if you don't know the story, David, the king of Israel, he sees Bathsheba and he uses his power, takes her, gets her pregnant, and then tries to cover it up. And when it doesn't work, he then has her husband killed through battle. That's the sin that is in front of David. But here's the thing. I think most of us, we do something like that. We recognize it as sin pretty quickly. I hope so. David spends in the narrative, David spends nearly a year before he comes to see his sin. And this is the insidious nature of sin. Sin wants to stay hidden. Sin wants you to be blind to it. Sin will do anything that it can to stay in the shadows. And so I love that we have verse one here in Psalm 51 showing us how David came to see his sin because it says, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had done it. And this innocuous little detail or seemingly innocuous detail is so purposeful and so important to us and shows us what is required for us often to see our sin clearly. Because if Nathan had not brought David's sin to him, he wouldn't have seen it clearly. He spends nearly a year after committing these heinous acts with no contrition, no recognition of what he has done. And it isn't until Nathan comes to him and says, hey, let me tell you a story about a man who took the only sheep that this neighbor had, even though he had all the sheep that he could want. And David says, where's this man? I'm going to kill him. And Nathan says, you are the man. This is what you have done with Bathsheba. This is your sin, David. And the scales fell and his heart breaks and he outflows Psalm 51. But it required Nathan coming to him and saying, this is your sin, David. I need you to see it. And so the first question I just really want us to wrestle with and ask ourselves as we consider what it looks like to see our sin is do you have a Nathan? Do you have someone in your life that no matter how grimy it gets, no matter how messed up your sin is, has the loyalty to God and the love for you to come to you and says, you are the man. You're the woman. This is your sin. I need you to see it, brother. I need you to see it, sister. And it's not going to be fun to talk about. 
but I need you to see it so that you can see your sin clearly because I care about the joy of your salvation. Do you have people in your life where you have said, hey, I need you to put my sin in front of my face. I need you to help me see my sin because left to ourselves, we will not see it clearly. And then with that, are you willing to be a Nathan? Are you willing to go to a brother or sister for the sake of the joy of their salvation and have the hard conversation? I mean, just, we can kind of use our imagination here and David's a king. He's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of influence. And it's kind of no wonder that he spent a year with no one bringing this up to him. Like, hey, you tell him. I don't want to tell him. You tell him. He's going to cut my head off. Like I, He had that guy killed. But Nathan goes to him and says, I, David, you need to see your sin. Are you willing to enter in and to bring, not for the sake of shaming someone, but for the sake of restoring to them the joy of their salvation and showing them the mercies of Christ. And then lastly, if a Nathan does come to you, are you willing to respond like David? When people bring you your sin, your spouse comes to you and says, hey, honey, we just, I really want to talk about this. How soon is it before you're defensive? How soon is it before you justify it? How soon is it before you downplay it? How soon is it, are you willing to receive from a Nathan in your life as well, like David? Because all of these things are necessary if we are going to be a people who see our sin clearly. But David doesn't just see his sin clearly for what it is. He sees it in the right way. And this is what Psalm 51 then shows us in the next verse. So we see our sin clearly, and then we must see our sin rightly. And here's the difference. Here's what I mean by that. In verse 4, David says, Against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David does not just see his sin. David sees his sin as God sees it. We live in a world today where it is so easy to put filters over everything. That's what we do. We live in kind of the digital landscape. And if something doesn't like, look the way we want it to or doesn't look the way that we like it to, we just sort of put a filter over it and we doctor it and we edit it and we present that. And what the human heart has a tendency to do all the time is put a filter over our sin. We, so, we sort of downplay it. We use euphemisms for it. We talk around it. We talk about things like we're struggling. Just really struggling with this. We have a hard time seeing our sin in light of how God himself sees it. So the, the way that I think about this is what, we need to see our sin the way that our front-facing camera sees us when we accidentally open our phones. It's not the doctored Instagram, right lighting, angled, filtered version of our sin. It's the, like when you accidentally open your phone, you're like, oh, okay, that's me. No filter, no nice lighting. We need to see our sin as God sees it. See, yes, David certainly committed sins against other people, but where his heart goes first is, God, against you have I sinned. 
I've done what's evil in your sight. So we have to be diligent studiers of the word to know how does God see the world? How does God see the design that he has for the world? How does God's heart feel toward this, that, or the other? So that I can see my sin, not filtered, not in good lighting, not downplayed, but really. Am I willing to see it as God sees it, as an affront against holiness and the standard and the beauty and the justice of God, unfiltered, unedited. And then lastly, we see our sin clearly, rightly, and we see our sin personally. Here's what I mean by this. David does not just see his sin. He doesn't just see it as God sees it. He sees it as his own. And this is where you and I can get really creative in not seeing our sin as our own. But look at verse one and two. Look at the pronouns here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out whose transgressions? My transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from whose iniquity? My iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. David attributes his sin fully and completely to himself. He understands that it's coming from within his own nature and is not merely a product of his circumstances. Look down in verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. David's saying that my sin nature has been there from the very beginning, from the moment that I was brought forth into this world. I've been capable of the things that I have just been shown. He sees it as his own. He does not blame shift for his sin. He does not skirt the responsibility for his sin. And so we have this tendency to say, well, I only did that because, and I need us to only finish that sentence with one thing, because I'm a sinner. Well, I, but I only reacted that way because you're a sinner. I, I only said that because, because you're capable of it. Because it is in your sin nature to do so. And we can't be surprised by it because we, like David, were brought forth in iniquity. So here's one of the hardest lessons for us to learn, especially in today's world. I don't have time to get on this soapbox, but man, if I did, in a world that wants everyone to believe that nothing is their fault. Your circumstances they may be the occasion for your sin. Your circumstances may even be the catalyst for your sin. Your circumstances are never the cause of your sin. You are the cause of your sin because you are a sinner who is capable of sinning. And it is not until we believe that and we own that and we see our sin for our own that we will be able to rest in and receive the mercies of God in Christ. I heard this great analogy from <clears throat> theologian and counselor David Powlison. Maybe some of you know who he is. He gives an analogy about a water bottle and he says, hey, I want you to like picture filling up a water bottle with the top off full of water. And then I want you to just like grab it and squeeze it and mess it up and knock it over. 
And then all this water's all over the place. And water's spewing out and it's coming out and it's just all over the ground. And it's made this big mess. And you go, hey, well, why is there water all over the ground? And one layer of that answer is, well, because you squeezed it and grabbed it and made a big mess and knocked it over. Absolutely. But why ultimately is there water all over the ground? Because there was water in the bottle. Your circumstances may stir things up. Your circumstances may create a certain environment, but whatever is in you is what's going to come out of you. Because if there was no water in the bottle, it doesn't matter if you did all the same things, there's no water on the ground. So the anger that you experience, yes, there are, there are circumstances that can elicit it, absolutely. But the anger is yours. The anger is in you. It's your sin. Your reactions are your sin. Your actions are your sin. And this does not mean that the things that are done to us can't also be sinful. Absolutely. And some of them are horrible. Some of them are incredibly painful and heavy. And there is so much truth and reality to that. Your circumstances may be the catalyst, but they're never the cause. And so we need to see our sin, not just as God sees it, but we have to see it as our own. Blot out my transgressions, David says. See your sin. See it for what it is as God sees it and see it as your own. But then Psalm 51 doesn't just present what it looks like to see our sin and then walks us through that roadmap of actually responding in light of the gospel. And this is what I love about Psalm 51 so much is it pushes us right through into the heart of God for us in Christ as this foreshadowing of what he has come to do for us. And so how do we respond in light of what Jesus has accomplished for us? And I think Psalm 51 gives it to us like this. We receive his mercy and we tell of it to others. We receive his mercy And we tell of that mercy to others. I want to spend most of the time talking about receiving his mercy because this, believe it or not, is harder for us than we think. See, we, we are really good at having the gospel doctrine and having the understanding of what Jesus has done for us. We say, yeah, Jesus died for my sins on the cross. But then there's these moments in our day where our sin becomes real to us and we need the cross to be real to us. And it's actually hard. It's hard to allow the mercy of God to be real to us. But what makes this psalm shine so brightly is that David doesn't just see his need for mercy. He has confidence that the mercy that he needs is actually available to him. And that's sort of the scandal of this psalm. That if many of us, if you or I did what David did, we would not be writing psalms and poetry to God in the wake of it. We would not be going to him with confidence and assurance and joy. But David does. Why? Because the mercy that he believes he needs, he also believes is there for him. Look at verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to, in light of your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David, from the onset, believes as much as I need your mercy, as heinous as my sin is, your mercy is more abundant than that. My sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. 
And this is the heartbeat of Psalm 51. In the same breath, David is recognizing his need and recognizing that God will meet that need and meet it abundantly. All the mercy that he needs, he knows that God has. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop and what? I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He goes with this utter confidence before God and says, yes, I know how much in mercy I need. But God, I know that in you, I can be washed clean. I can be whiter than snow. And so really the only thing that David is more sure of than his need for mercy is that God will give it. We must be able to receive his mercy. And here's the beauty for us is that how much more sure can we be than David? When David is leaning on a promise of God's mercy, we actually have the objective evidence that his mercy is real. In the cross of Christ, we see what God actually did to accomplish and secure the mercy that we need. We have a savior who came and secured for us all the forgiveness and mercy that we'll ever need. And on his cross, our sin, past, present, and future, it was condemned. My favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 8, 3, that God did in his son what the law could not accomplish. For in his son, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's what having mercy means. You have to believe that the sin that you are living with, the sin that you commit, the sin that you feel, all the sin that you have committed, the sin that you're wrestling through and working through right now, and all of the sin that you are going to commit has already been condemned in the person of Jesus. Fully, freely, forever. It's already been condemned. And that's the scandalous beauty of the gospel. You are more in need of mercy than you realize. And there is more mercy available to you than you could ever imagine. And so as Christ receives the just punishment for our sin, all we get in response is mercy and forgiveness and grace. And I think this is why Psalm 51 is such a treasure for us because it presses us right up, just right up to the glass and makes us see our need for mercy. And we see ourselves in there with David and we go, yeah, I know that feeling. I know the feeling of feeling like I'm far from God, feeling like I've messed up beyond repair, feeling like I just am never gonna make the progress that I wanna make. But then David goes, and your mercy's more abundant. The mercy that I believe I need, I know you can give. We have to be able to believe that and receive it. It's not up on the slide, but it just reminds me of one of my all-time favorites, Charles Spurgeon quotes. He says, I have a great need for Christ, but I have a great Christ for my need. That's Psalm 51. Seeing our need for what Jesus has done, but then actually going and believing that Jesus has done it. That all of the sin has been condemned. It has been canceled. That we look at the cross of Christ and not just believe that the cross did what we need it to happen, but believe that it's true for us. That's what I want for us. Is not just, okay, yeah, I, I know that Jesus died on the sin for my cross. And saying that theologically is true. But 
but believing that it's true for me. That when I, it's not just he died for sin, he died for my sin. He didn't just condemn sin in the flesh, he condemned my sin in the flesh. He didn't just provide mercy, I have mercy available to me. And we look at what the cross accomplished. Look at Colossians 2. I think it's one of the more clear explanations of this. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. It's an awesome word there, all. By what? What did the cross do to give us that forgiveness? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So here's what Paul is saying the cross did for our sin. One, it canceled the record. So the record that we keep in our heads of our sin, God doesn't keep. It's already been nailed to the cross. So when all the times when you feel like I'm far from God, this is jacking with my heart, it's already been canceled. He nailed it to the cross. The entire list, past, present, and future, nailed to the cross. And he says it's been paid for. It's already been condemned. And this, not in the notes, this is totally for free, but we got to wrestle with it a little bit. When we heap shame and self-condemnation on ourselves because of our sin, what effectively we're saying is, God, you didn't take care of my sin adequately enough. And I got to pay for it a little bit more. You sort of took care of it, but I got to condemn myself a little bit more. The condemnation that you poured out on the flesh of Jesus Christ is not sufficient. I need to pile on a little bit more guilt so that my sin can be really paid for. But no, the, the record's been canceled. And then I, I love this. I love that he then says, oh, also what it did, he disarms the accuser. He disarms the enemy. And so he goes on and says, hey, by taking this record of debt and nailing it to the cross and canceling it all the way, he says, he's taken the thing that Satan wants to use to point to you to keep you from God. That's what the word Satan means. It means the accuser. And that's what Satan does. That's how he operates. So he says, hey, that sin that you committed, that thing that you're struggling with, that thing in your past, that thing that you're dealing with right now, he wants to point to it and he wants to accuse you. And he says, hey, that's why you can't be a child of God. That's why you're never going to amount to anything. That's why you can't find life and joy. That's why you should never believe that you have a hope and a future. That's why God will never use you. And he points to it. And the beauty is, is that we go, what are you pointing to, bro? What do you have to point to? Oh, that thing? Yeah, that's already been nailed to the cross. Oh, that's totally true. And it's been paid for. That's not mine to carry anymore. Jesus paid for it. So there is nothing now that the accuser can point to and use to accuse you because it's all on the cross. And so it's been disarmed. He's been disarmed. He has nothing to point to and say. And so this is when we say we need to receive the mercy of Christ. This is what this means. That it has to be real to us. That in the moments when the accuser points and we feel the thoughts flooding in and the feelings flooding in and all we can do is just feel like we want to wallow in our sin or we start to get defensive or we want to numb out, but we can go, no, we don't need to. The accuser's been disarmed. The record of debt has been paid. It's been canceled. It's done. Martin Luther says this. I love this. He says, when Satan tells me I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. 
spiritual judo right there. Like in judo, you take the momentum of your opponent and kind of use it against them. And Satan goes, hey, what about that sin? You're like, I know, isn't Christ's mercy amazing? What about that thing that you just never gonna get out of? I know, isn't the fact that Jesus loves me still amazing? Even though I keep struggling, I mean, how incredible is that? How incredible is the mercy of Christ for me or from my, one of my favorite hymns, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Well, where do I look? I don't look within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. I mean, what a scandalous, radical thing to actually believe and receive. And so here's what it looks like practically. I want to kind of bring this on to the ground level for us a little bit. Because there's going to be times where you're going to sin. You're going to sin today. You're going to sin tomorrow. You're going to sin the day after that and the day after that. And some are going to hit harder than others and some are going to have bigger ripple effects than others. But you're going to sin. And here's what it means to actually receive the mercy of Christ. It protects us against two equal and opposite errors, two kind of pitfalls that we want to go to in our flesh when we are not believing the truth of the cross and when we agree with the accusations of the enemy. This is what we do. We go one of two ways. We either minimize our sin or we allow it to crush us. We minimize or we wallow and crumble under it. When we, do it, when we minimize it, like, that's what we talked about with deflecting, right? We'd say, well, it's not really my fault. It's not really my, I mean, yes, probably could have handled that a little bit better, but really it was this person did this and that was really the reason why I did that or we use kind of euphemisms and it's, well, I wasn't, I just sort of was struggling with this. We minimize it, we downplay it, we blame shift because we don't functionally believe that the mercy of Christ is sufficient to handle the reality and gravity of what the sin really is. So we got to tone it down a few notches or We fall off the horse the other way and we go all the way over to just allowing our sin to crush us and consume us and we wallow in it and we say, this is defining me and woe is me and we can't have interactions with anyone because we're feeling so much shame and we want to isolate and we want to run away and we define ourselves by our sin and we heap shame and condemnation on ourselves and we allow sin and we allow the accuser to actually be true. But when we receive the mercy of Christ, we don't have to do either of those things. It protects us against both of those fleshly tendencies because I don't have to minimize my sin anymore. I can allow my sin to be as big as it is because Christ's mercy is more abundant still. I mean, I just gotta believe there's no one in this room that has stolen another person's spouse, tried to cover it up, and had that person killed. If so... I mean, I say this not tongue-in-cheek, but the, the mercy of Christ is sufficient for it. But probably not. And yet, David goes with utter confidence that the, he doesn't, there's no minimizing the sin in Psalm 51. There's no blame-shifting. There's no downplaying. Treats his sin for as real and as weighty as it is because he believes that the mercy of God is sufficient to do so. 
But then neither does David then wallow in. He says, I'm, okay, well, I clearly, I can never be king again. And I can't believe I ever even tried to write a psalm. I'm never going to write another psalm again. And I'm so unworthy. And I'm, I'm going to be defined by this for the rest of my life. And David doesn't allow that to happen either. Why? Because the mercy is sufficient. Because the mercy that he needs is actually there. And so he actually believes I'm not defined by what I've done. I am defined by who God says I am and what he has done for me in Christ. And so he doesn't have to minimize his sin. Neither does he go and wallow in it. He sees his sin for what it is, owns it fully, and then receives the mercy of God and walks in freedom and joy because of it. And so when you sin today, tomorrow, the next day, that is my prayer, that you would be able to do that. That you would not just think of the mercy of God for you in Christ as a theoretical concept, but as a reality that you can receive and actually walk in. Because there's going to be, it's going to be tempting. It's going to be tempting. You're going to want to downplay it. You're going to want to talk about it in a little bit of a minimized way, or you're going to want to wallow in it. That's why I love Psalm 51. Instead of minimizing, you can see your sin for what it is. See it clearly. See it as God sees it. Own it fully. And then receive the mercy of Christ that is there for you in abundance. And instead of allowing it to crush you and define you and wallow in it, you can, yes, have sorrow for it. Have contrition for it. But then allow that to lead you to the foot of the cross where there is mercy in bounties for you. And you don't have to allow it to crush you. And then just to close... Real quick, David doesn't just receive God's mercy. He doesn't allow it to terminate on himself. Look at verse 13. This is where, and we tell of it to others. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David's experience of grace and forgiveness drives him to share that experience of grace and forgiveness with others. And this is where the beauty of the church shines and where we have such a wonderful opportunity to serve one another. Because here's what I know to be true, because I've experienced it in my own life. I've experienced it in pastoring in so many other scenarios. There are people in your life that are struggling to believe that the mercy of God is real and sufficient for them. Your testimony of how it was real and sufficient for you is the means that God wants to use to help them believe it. And so we, when we open our lips and we teach transgressors the ways of God's mercy, it's God saying, hey, I want someone else to see that my mercy is real, real enough to call your sin for what it is and walk in joy and freedom because of it. So it means that we got to stop pretending. We got to stop minimizing. We got to stop downplaying. We got to stop trying to hide and put on the front. And we got to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. And this is how, not just I'm a sinner in theory. I'm a sinner for real. This is how I need the mercy of God. And praise God that it's there for me. And you doing that, you testifying of that, you opening your mouth and sharing that with another brother or another sister is the means by which that mercy becomes real to them. I mean, again, think about this. David had every reason to keep this to himself. And he pens it in a psalm that will last forever. 
he shares the story of how God's mercy was real to him and how he needed it to be real to him. And one of the best ways to ensure that God's mercy is real to it is to speak to others as if it's actually real. That'll be the litmus test. Do I believe God's mercy is real and sufficient? Do you speak to others in a way where it's clear that you need it? Do other people know that you actually, tangibly, and specifically need the mercy of God for the struggles and sins in your life? We're all going to have moments where we need God's mercy. I hope, I hope and pray that we would, like David, open our lips, that we would testify, that we would be able to share and say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm And I needed God's mercy for this and God's mercy was there for me and I'm walking not perfectly but in joy and confidence in the reality of the gospel day by day with Jesus. And those brothers and sisters who are struggling to believe that God's mercy is real which is really all of us from time to time and that's the beauty of the church is that we all get to do this for one another. We get to be the means by which God makes his mercy real. See our sin see it clearly, see it rightly, see it as our own, and then we believe and receive the mercy of God. We testify of it to others. Let's pray together. And I'd love for you if you just bow your heads and close your eyes. And before I pray, I want to just sort of give you a couple things to pray for because I don't want to miss the chance to do business with God. And so really just like the first thing that I'd love for you to just take just a couple moments and just ask God, hey God, would you show me my sin? Would you show me where I am looking around my sin, where I'm blurring, where I'm trying to skirt it to the side, where maybe I'm minimizing, downplaying? God, would you make my sin real to me? Would you put it in front of my face? God, would you help me believe in your mercy enough to not minimize, to not deflect, to not blame shift, to not mask, but to see it as you see it and to see it as my own. And then I'd love if you just ask the Lord, because this is what he does in his Holy Spirit. Spirit, would you, would you make your mercy even more real to me? I love the prayer of the man in Mark 9. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That is every single one of us. Yes, Jesus, I believe that you've died for me. Would you actually help me really believe it in a way that it becomes real, that that your mercy becomes real in such a way that it completely shadows my sin, that I know that there is grace and forgiveness abundant for me. Jesus, help me see that. Ask him. Say, Lord, show me your abundant mercies. Give me the confidence that David has in your scandalous forgiveness.
And then lastly, would you just ask him for the boldness and the opportunity to open your lips and testify of his mercy and his grace and his goodness to others. In your conversations with your family, in your small group, in your workplace with your neighbors, just for the opportunity, like, hey man, God's mercy is incredible. Let me tell you how. Man, I've been struggling to believe that God's mercy is real and it just it became real to me when I needed it to be real. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word and your truth. We ask that it would not return void as it has gone out today, that we would be men and women, every one of us in this room, who see our sin for what it is and rest wholly and confidently and completely in the mercy that you have for us in Christ Jesus. It's in his name. Amen.